electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, the jobs jump, what it means for stocks, rates, and your money. We'll debate that today with the Investment Committee and our special guest, Corvex Capital's Keith Meister. He is with us momentarily and exclusively. Joining me for the hour today, Shannon Sakosha, Degas Wright, Kevin O'Leary, and John Nigerian. He's the co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. It's good to see everybody on this Friday. We do begin with stocks getting a lift off of that better-than-expected jobs report. Rates, as you know, are on the move. A number of sectors are as well. The Dow hits a new intraday high. John Nigerian. I'm wondering now if this is a game changer for the way we need to think about the market, whether this means now rates have definitively bottomed, whether certain sectors like tech are going to be on the outs, whether the reflation trade is back in and whether it moves up the taper. Are you thinking about those kinds of things today? I think virtually everybody on Wall Street's thinking about those kinds of things today, Scott. Yes, is the answer to that, um, because it was a great jobs report. It also was a nice revision to the June jobs report, um, and that had an immediate reaction like that in the bond market. And we all know that we hit 112 and change for that 10-year on Monday, and that's why we saw some of the definite compression that we saw. Uh, And since then, we've been working our way back up and moving to 127. So that tells you, Scott, that if we haven't seen the bottom on rates or the high on bonds, obviously, They work in opposite directions. Um, I think we've come very, very close to it. And could we retest again? Eh, If if certain data comes in, I guess we could, Scott. But I think people are a lot more comfortable seeing that there are there's job creation, there's wage inflation, um, but not out of control. Four percent wage inflation year over year. And I think workers in particular and obviously the Biden administration have to love that part of it. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking of different areas of the market today, Kevin O'Leary, that are on the move. Um, And I'm thinking of you and the banks, uh, because you've been a hater of the financial stocks. And I got Goldman Sachs hitting a new all time high today. I've got Morgan Stanley hitting a new high today. I've got J.P. Morgan off to the races today. I wonder if now if the landscape has changed for you, Kevin, time to make some money in the financials or what? No, I have played in the financial services area. J.P. Morgan is a name that I own. Uh, it's not a heavy weighting for me because I think money center banks, uh, you know, return on assets um, are, are challenged. And I know the stocks have done well. A lot of sectors have done well with this amount of liquidity. But when I put new money to work now, I'm far more interested in decentralized finance. That's what's going to be disrupting these money center banks. There's a lot of capital flowing into that space. You looked at what happened just the last few weeks, a billion dollars into FTX. It's private, 900 million going into circle that brings out the, the stable coin, USDC. And so you ask yourself, if, if so much capital is going there, um, what, where's the puck going? And I think the puck is moving away from money center banks. And I've said that for a long time. 
I haven't been right on the stocks. I participate a little bit, but I still own plenty of financial services companies. So I'm feeling okay. But there's a change afoot. There's a lot of money going into other areas around crypto that are starting to get interesting for institutions. I don't know whose phone that is. Maybe that's yours, Kevin. Lunch is being delivered as we speak. Uh, Degas Wright, <laughs> you own Morgan Stanley, okay? Um, are we thinking of this today now as a jump-off point where the banks can start performing again on a consistent basis, not fits and starts, but on a consistent basis? Is it time to put money into big banks? And, Scott, uh, it, it is because, and I'll, let me lay this out for you first, in that when we look at the 10-year Treasury, it's at uh, 1.3, which is a risk-on signal. Plus, we have a great jobs number that uh, says that we're going to have positive economic growth more than expected. We got the 90% uh, of the companies are still surprising, and we have positive fiscal and monetary uh, support. Plus, the consumer continues to spend. So, yes, what we really like is the financials to include credit card companies, REITs, and banks, and also the industrials to include transportation and manufacturing. Shan, I'm wondering about the tech trade. We got it under pressure today, and if rates now are going to start rising, is that trade in trouble? Oh, it's dead, right? You know, because, it, you know, expanding economic growth <laughs> and hiring and acceleration of uh, enterprise spend based on CEO confidence, clearly you wouldn't want to hold tech companies in this environment. Will there be some pressure here from a rotation back into some of these more reflationary cyclical trades? Perhaps. But again, if you're setting yourself up for an extended period of economic growth, which I believe will not likely to be disrupted by a very thoughtful taper, then you can still have big tech. And in fact, if we get some weakness here coming off of earnings report, coming off of some of the numbers that we saw and some of the weakness that we saw in big tech after those earnings report through profit taking, then this would be a great opportunity to add some of those longer term names. I, I think that, you know, the important thing to note here is that we are seeing slightly higher wages. That's good for consumer spending. We're not seeing a tick up in hours worked, which means we're not likely to see pressure on labor for the next couple of months at least. Um, and a lot of these jobs, Scott, were in hiring and leisure and hospitality. Delta is still out there. We're seeing behavioral responses, if not government lockdowns. So those fits and starts that you talked about, they're still going to be there. Now, I knew you were sarcastic at the top there, and I'm assuming that our viewers <laughs> did, too, when you were saying you should own technology stocks. So I totally get it, and I want to make sure we're all on the same page. I'm looking at the ARK Innovation <laughs> ETF, okay? It's down one and three quarters percent. Kevin O'Leary, I'm thinking, you know, wondering if that trade is going to be in trouble for a while. The highest of high growth tech that attracts the Kathy Woods and other people who love these high multiple, high growth, high technology stocks that have had a great ride, uh, but have been in trouble anytime rates start to move up and these stocks are among them. We are down one and three quarters percent on the ARK Innovation ETF. It's at one, $123 and change. The 52-week high is 159 The low is 81 So we're smack in the middle. 
Nobody's denying volatility in these names, but what's happened and what's changed coming out of the pandemic, it's clear now they're integrated into our economy. Um, I don't think technology uh, is what it, what it was three years ago. You can't run a business anymore without using much of these products and, and the services these firms provide. The question is, what PE do you want to pay? So when we get bashing of Facebook, for example, that's in the news again today uh, with regulators, does that actually change consumer behavior? Does it change the propensity of companies to advertise on it or consumers to go to it? No. And so the only change that occurs is the PE could be under pressure for a while, but not the growth. And so I, I, I have a full weighting in technology all through the volatility. And yes, any time the 10 year goes past one, two, nine or whatever it is, Everybody says, oh, tech is over. It's not over. It's not over at all. These companies are going to continue to grow. Even the Chinese companies are going to continue to grow. Even they're getting bashed by their own regulators. I find it fascinating that we do this to ourselves as investors. But to me, it's just a buying opportunity. When the regulator bashes a behemoth tech company, you can back up the truck because it's not changing consumer behavior or how those products are used. No, but, but you can look at these in a different way, right? I mean, you're, you're lumping everything together. I can look at mega cap tech, for example, and say, okay, that's growth at a reasonable price, let's say. I can look at some of these ARC names, these so-called ARC names, and say, those are not growth at a reasonable price. As you just said, the valuations of some of those stocks need to be questioned, perhaps, unlike some of the others in that space. Isn't that fair, especially where interest rates could go from here? What was deemed not too expensive before, perhaps becomes too expensive in this environment. It's fair, and Zoom is probably the poster child of that, you know, a product that people said was just a feature, not a business, and they've turned it into telco and all kinds of other enterprise services. And growth remains the same. The price you pay for Zoom stock's been all over the map. But as a core holding, I'm not giving it up. To me, that is part of what we do today in business globally. And so it's just a matter of what price you want to pay. You're fair to criticize extension in price point. That's fair. And what triggers a downplay or what triggers a down price move or consolidation is compressed PE. But my whole point, Scott, is growth has not stopped. Look at the cash flow. Look at the sales. Quarter after quarter, they just keep going. And they keep getting bashed and focused on based on interest rates, whatever else. But the underlying investment thesis has not changed. I want to get a comment uh, from you, Shan, on sort of the broader market uh, before I bring in our headline guest today. I do it in the context of the notes that are out on the street today, whether it's Tom Lee saying there are multiple risk on signs now. Uh, Jonathan Krinsky, the technician whom we frequently have on, says you got to give the benefit of the doubt to the bulls here. Uh, a gentleman over at UBS, we believe the Fed's move towards tapering is unlikely to prompt a reversal of the equity rally. Uh, you see Bank of America flows, the sixth week of inflows uh, into technology. So everybody is once again feeling pretty good about themselves and where we could go uh, in the stock market, that nothing seemingly is going to disrupt this delta or otherwise. Yeah, I think that's probably a little bit too optimistic from my my perspective. I do think that the Delta variant and subsequent variants, because there will be some, um, certainly can continue to weigh on the market over the course of the next couple of months. What's important, though, is that they're not likely to weigh significantly on economic activity. And so if you think about what's driving this, this rotation back into stocks and you're thinking about, 
any sort of potential disruption. We know seasonally August and September aren't typically great markets for the great months for the market. Um, and so if you come out of Jackson Hole and you feel like the taper is going to be a bit more aggressive, we could see a little bit of a, a disruption here in this rally. But if you look at it from where we were a few months ago, Scott, all we talked about was this Goldilocks scenario where all sectors could really rise on expectations of expanding economic growth. And I think that some of these flows are pointing to that. Back half of the year, you don't necessarily want to be in bonds because unless you need it from an insulation standpoint. And so that could continue. But I do think we could have another opportunity for some disruption late August, early September. We are watching the Dow at the highs of the day. It's a good for nearly 150 points today. That is a new intraday high for the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And on that note, let's welcome in our headline guest today. Keith Meister is the CEO of Corvex Capital. He just completed his third SPAC deal today. We're going to get to that in just a few minutes. It's good to see you. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Congrats on SPAC deal number three, which I said we'll we'll get to in a, in a few minutes. I know it's a big day for you, and you want to talk about that. But... Uh, I think it's a big day for how we look at the market, perhaps, from here forward. How, how does the landscape look to you in context of what we got today from a job standpoint? Well, if you, you know, it's funny. If you, if you ask the market participant in the beginning of the week, the worry was deflation with the 10-year trading, you know, as low as 112. Today, the 10 years moved to 129 on a good jobs report, and people are worried about inflation. I think generally right now, as a stock investor, um, an environment in which we're having good economic data, we're worried about inflation versus deflation is constructive. So if I said to myself, where do I want the world to be? I want the economy to be reopened. I want the 10-year, frankly, to be closer to two than 129 as an owner of equities. So, so my sense is um, I was very bullish when I came on four months ago. I don't think I'm as bullish today because the taper is coming, some liquidity will come out and we have to work through that. But it's really hard to be bearish. I mean, there's a massive amount of liquidity in the system. Um, the Fed didn't show up, I said, with a, a bazooka. They showed up with the whole military. We're about to get a lot of fiscal policy, whether it's the infrastructure bill or reconciliation and, you know, give the Biden administration credit. They've been very successful with getting their agenda through. So as you look at the environment, it's hard to not want to own stocks. And then if you think about the market, you know, we talk about the S&P 500. You know, this is an amazing index of companies, and it's not just the FANG names. If you look at the top 25 companies in the index, I think they represent about 40% of the S&P. And forget about Facebook and Amazon, Microsoft, Google. We all know those are amazing businesses. Look at the next level, the JP Morgans, the Home Depots, the United Healthcare, the Visa, the MasterCard. These are awesome businesses. If you ask anyone on your panel, I think they'd all say over the next one year, three year, five year, all those businesses grow. They all can allocate capital smart. They're all well-managed. They have strong balance sheets. And if you compare that to owning a 10-year, whether it's at 112, 129, or 2%, which hopefully is where it will be, or even higher, I think you want to own equities. So is it as easy as it was? No, but it's really hard to be bearish. Yeah, but it sounds like you are saying maybe the, the best of the gains are behind us because of what lies ahead. And that even you know higher rates can still be good for stocks but there may be an initial reaction to an actual taper. And some of the liquidity that has stimulated a lot of this gets pulled out of the system. Yeah, forgetting what the individual reaction to the taper would be, because I think your frame is accurate. But if you look forward, you know, I think you want to own businesses. I think uh, the economy, and we can talk about this, I see it through the lens of MGM where I'm on the board. You know, MGM reported uh, uh, their financial results uh, yesterday. 
and they said July was a record. So they had, still with the Delta, vir- Delta variant gaining momentum towards the second half of July, they had a record July. Why? Because, you know, the consumer is really, really healthy, and we've been locked up. There's lots of pent-up demand, and people want to go out, and they want to do things. So, you know, if you think about a business as its, its earnings power, you know, I think the backdrop is pretty high. Unemployment's down to 5.5%. There's huge savings on the sidelines. Interest rates are low. Yeah, sure. Could we have a 5% pullback or something associated with tapering? Yes. But in general, is the economy good? And do we get a reset? And are we probably earlier in the cycle than we should be here? Yeah. So, I mean, in general, it's hard to be bearish. Now, what keeps me from being so bullish is valuations. Um, you know, stocks are not cheap, broadly defined, and we're up 18% this year. So we've moved a lot. And, um, you know, not every stock is, is a buy. We don't buy the index. We buy individual names. And I think the right answer continues to be own risk assets. Um, when I came on last time, I said my worry was inflation, that the Fed would continue to be supportive and accommodating, accommodative until they created inflationary uh, risk. The offset to that being technology and, and demographics being very, very powerful, you know, get shaken a little bit over the last four months, but I still think that's the backdrop. And the Delta variant will, will came, one po- one unintended positive of that is it probably keeps the Fed a little dovish a little longer. Um, I ultimately, you know, we're going to talk about a life science back later. The ultimate life science investment, frankly, is a bet on the market that we will be able to figure out how to have vaccines, that they will work, that they will handle the variant and that our our country politically will come together to get people variant, get people vaccinated. I actually believe that plays out. Does it happen every day? No. But my guess is when we look at this country at the end of the year, the percentage of people vac- vaccinated is well north of 70%. And my hope is 2022 sets up as a, a year where the economy can be open for the full year. Rates will be higher. There'll be some volatility getting from here to there that may cause you know equities to be difficult to more difficult to own. But net-net, it's hard to see how they're much lower in the future, because then when you say, what am I betting against? It's these great companies I, I, I just told you about. And maybe the multiples contract, but that universe of companies is going to grow earnings at a double-digit rate. So I think it's hard to be bearish. you know. So I guess I can join the group of people who are reluctant <laughs> uh, bulls here. And that last point, I think that positioning is true for... For all the euphoria in stocks, I don't see many people coming on your show saying we're all in. And if you look at the places where historically you see that to what you were saying earlier, in some of the you know asset class bubble stocks, whether it be SPACs or whether it be Uber high growth stocks or or, 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 or or similar things, a lot of that's deflated since February. So I think the Fed's actually done a really good job of saying, you know, we're gonna keep the punch pole there, but we get that inflation could be a risk change the language to say, if we need to move, we will move. So lots of credibility while having very easy financial conditions. So it's sort of a benign backdrop, but that's reflected in, reflected in valuations. So it, it seems like fully open plus booming economy trumps the prospect of, of higher rates, that these companies, because of the environment uh, economically, are going to be able to withstand whatever you know, whatever comes with a, a move higher in interest rates, it's still more bullish than not. I find it interesting of, you know, your sort of investment strategy right now or the kinds of things you're investing in. You say one third is in COVID beneficiaries. 
one-third are in event-driven names. You, you mentioned Exelon as a stock that you're in. And then one-third are in pure reopen plays. Is that characterizing everything uh, on the level? Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, like, the reason for that is it's very hard to know. I'm not a, no one knows the path of how COVID will play out. So some days you want to own reopening stocks. Some days you may want to own, you know, uh, 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 things that benefit from the economy being closed. But in general, I think we want to own equities. We want to own risk assets. We want to be balanced by which factor we own and do the work. So if you look at the, the big cap tech names, I think there's a lot of GARP names that are actually relatively reasonably priced and very attractive when compared against where, you know, where treasury yields are or bond yields. And then if you look at some of the reopening stocks and the opportunities and where you're buying an MGM today, I think that's really, really attractive. So we have a third of our portfolio um, in each side of that. And then always finding event-driven names where there is a specific catalyst. So, you know, I am much more confident in risk assets than I am in the individual path of the, of the virus over the next week or month. And I'm much more confident that, you know, six months from now, 12 months from now, we'll be in a better place. And the irony is, I actually think if we have a 10-year at 2%, that's really good for MGM, and it's also really, really good for Google. There may be days in which they act differently as the path goes from 125 to 2, but if you're going to own Google, Google as an example, you want a good economy. They're selling lots of advertising. You want people out and about. So uh, I, I think having that balance takes you know, the path of recovery off the table and ends up just being a bet on recovery, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm also curious as to how somebody like you views what's taken place in the meme stocks. What, what, just what that says about the current environment that we're in, and I probably asked you the same thing the last time you were on when we maybe were in more of the GameStop mania, but we do have those types of names crop up again. Is it its own sort of market that you can silo away and say it's not representative of really anything that would make me concerned about where we are more broadly? Or does it say to you that, well, you know, maybe that does speak to an overall speculative environment that we've been in for some period of time? How do you see that? So the first thing I think about is, you know, retail participation in the market is clearly a good thing. And, you know, it's humbling and you need to not underestimate it. So the power of retail in the market is amazing, especially in a market structure where more and more institutional capital is in index products. The power of retail is, is even stronger. Um, clearly, when you have retail coming in and, quote, you know, buying short dated options and you know, the gamification of trading on the margin, that's probably not a good thing. But I generally think the behavior since you know, February of retail has become way more rational and sure, there'll be a handful of meme stocks, and those are very much one-off situations. But if you think about the, the areas of bubbles, and SPACs are a great example, or the, or the you know, you were talking earlier about the, the highest growth companies, I think a lot of those bubbles have deflated since February, while the S&P has gone straight up. And, and I think that's actually healthy. So um, retail's here, they're here to stay, it's a good thing. Um, every time we think about a position, we should spend more time, whether it's a long or short, thinking about retail flows. But at the end of the day, most of our work is still going to be based on fundamentals. You, you mentioned something really interesting, and, and we've talked about it before on this program, is the self-correcting nature of maybe the most highly speculative parts of the market. 
be it you know NFTs for a moment, certain parts of the SPAC business. I know you would admit maybe got a, a little bit carried away with you know dozens of, of SPACs being announced uh, every single day, and we certainly don't see any anywhere near the like of that. Uh, some of those high growth, like ARK stocks, come back to earth a little bit. That's been a healthy thing in, in your mind. It's saved perhaps some of the greater pain that would potentially have existed down the road. Yeah, like, let, let, let's, let's use an example. You, you, you asked that question. It made me think about last week. I think we had a trillion dollars of capital loss in, in Chinese ADRs. If you told me that that would have happened without having contagion on equity markets six months ago, I would have said no way. So we had the you know the second largest economy in the world where a lot of growth equity is invested, you know, in many people's opinion become uninvestable and equities are up. So, you know, these the self-correcting mechanisms, you know, the market has a lot of liquidity right now. And, and I think, um, you know, it's very hard to fight that right now. Yeah, no, it's an interesting topic, the Chinese stocks. We'll, we're going to talk a little bit more uh, about that later on uh, because Kevin O'Leary, who's with us today, uh, is actually buying some stocks. And we'll tell you the names coming up. Keith, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I mentioned you just announced your third SPAC deal in the healthcare space with Eli Kasdan of Kasdan Capital. He's going to join the conversation next. We'll talk about the big deal today, some other ideas in healthcare, which has been a great space to be in of late. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit ODFL.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. President Biden saying the July jobs report shows strong growth, but he also says that much work still needs to be done to keep the recovery going and keep the Delta variant at bay. We learned that the economy created 943,000 new jobs in July. 943,000. The unemployment rate fell by a half a percent to 5.4%. What is indisputable now is this. The Biden plan is working. The Biden plan produces results. And the Biden plan is moving the country forward. 
In Arkansas, no changes to the state's ban on mask mandates. The legislature finishing a special session to reconsider the ban without any changes to help fight rising COVID cases, including an outbreak in one school district where more than 800 students and staff have been quarantined. And in New York, a former aide to Governor Andrew Cuomo has filed a criminal complaint against the governor. She accuses Cuomo of groping her breast at the governor's mansion last year. It's the first known official report to a law enforcement agency over alleged misconduct by Cuomo. Cuomo, of course, continues to deny he did anything wrong. And on the news tonight, possible impeachment and criminal charges. What's still ahead for the governor? Shep will bring it all down tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. If you're now up to date, Scott, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, appreciate it very much. Thank you, Rahel Solomon. We mentioned our guest Keith Meister announcing his third SPAC deal today with partner Eli Kasdan, the founder of Kasdan Capital, their CM Life Sciences 3, merging with EQRX. That is a company focusing on reducing drug prices. Keith is still with us, as we said, along with Eli. Eli, welcome back. It's nice to see you again. Thanks, Scott. Nice to be here. I'll give you the first question uh, on this, because this is somewhat home cooking for you. You were an early investor in EQ. Uh, why this deal? Why now? Listen, I think that the power of a SPAC platform is that you can bring enormous amount of capital to a true growth company. And, and you know you know if it's a growth company, if you give it more money and it goes faster. And EQRX is one such business. Um, this deal will bring about a billion and a half dollars to the balance sheet of the company and allow it to accelerate its business model of disrupting um, the distribution model for drug development, bringing in innovative drugs, partnering with payers and selling it to the patient at a discount. This is the exact kind of thing that we set out to do. Keith, is it harder to impress the market these days with deals like this? I'm just noticing it's a touch below uh, 10 bucks, which is you know the, the demarcation line, if you will, in SPAC land. Well, the answer to that question is yes. There's clearly been a, a, a lot of pain in the SPAC ecosystem. There was too many SPACs and too many deals. That's okay. So. Um, now, as you work through that pain, um, the fact that we can raise $1.2 billion for our pipe from some of the leading investors in the world, whether they be growth investors like SoftBank, whether they be long-only investors like Fidelity, or whether they be some of the early venture capital investors in the company like Anderson Harwood. So from some of the best investors in the world, as well as from strategic partners who are ultimately going to put their money where their mouth is and, and be partners with EQRX is a great thing. We negotiated, it's actually way healthier, right? We negotiated a deal with the EQRX management team to put money in at a fair value, right? It's a euphoric market where that, where that re-rates the next day up 80% like it did on our first deal. Now, where ultimately we should be judged is where does this company trade one, three, five years from now? And by putting, as Eli said earlier, I think the company will have close to $2 billion with the 1.8 billion we're putting in plus the, the 300 million on their balance sheet. By putting $2 billion on this company's balance sheet, they can actually, you know, innovate and have enough money to go bigger and faster. And, you know, what EQRX is set up to do is something we're going to look back on and say, this is inevitable. Why did it take so long? And what that is, is to take all the innovation that's occurring in drug uh, uh, development and let it flow through to the patient by lowering drug prices. So simply put, what EQRX does is, they develop the same drugs that are developed by the largest pharma companies today, that the largest pharma companies sell for two, $300,000. EQRX develops them. They're patently different, substantially the same or better. They develop those drugs. And by partnering with the, what they call a global buyer's club, the payers, 
they say, we'll sell you that drug for 25, 35% of the price. So instead of $200,000, it's $50,000. And what they ask for in return from the payer is we need you to pull this product to your members. So instead of spending pharma companies spending lots of money on, uh, on shiny Super Bowl commercials and having to use that to offset the price of the $200,000 drug, EQRX, by having scale relationships with this global buyers club, can sell the drug for a much lower price without having to have a sales force, without having to have a huge marketing expenditure, save the consumer uh, lots of money, and also make margins that are consistent with where Big Pharma is today. Now, mm-hmm. it sounds really easy to do, but it's, it hasn't happened yet. And the reason why it hasn't happened yet is it takes a massive amount of capital, it takes a great team and lots of early success, and the, the founder of EQRX, Alexis Borsi, is as proven an entrepreneur as they're in the space. He's assembled an amazing team with his co-founder, uh, co-founder uh, Melanie Nalachari and Jamie Rubin from Goldman and a team of the best drug hunters. They have two molecules that have had massive early success align on site from just those two products at $2 billion of revenue. And then what Eli's insight was as a founding investor was now was the time for a bigger boat. And maybe I'll turn it over to Eli to talk about how that bigger boat is going to add value. Well, because it's, it, it is interesting. I mean, what, what ultimately is going to pay off, Eli, for investors is the ability for EQRX to actually develop drugs and, and take them to market. What I'm wondering is, number one, how, how long it's going to take to do that, right? How long investors are going to have to wait and how ultimately expensive this whole process is going to end up being. Yeah, listen, I think that that is the power of this model, which is which is to say, um, and I think we all know it to be true, having lived through this COVID and the vaccine, the innovation engine in the biotech industry is, you know, at full speed. And these drugs are coming out. There's actually enormous amount of inventory of innovative drugs out there that EQRX is actually licensing in. So it's not the traditional sort of biotech model, which we invest in heavily, where you have uh, a good idea and R&D dollars and seven years later you have a product. EQRX is going out into proven genetically defined uh, diseases and uh, cancer, inflammation, and going out and getting molecules that have 50, 60, 70% likelihood of success that are late stage and can get to the market um, and then matching that with the payer. And so it changes that whole business model. So, you know, we're looking in the in the uh, 24, 25, 26, that they're going to have actually uh, uh, commercial products on the market that are incredibly impactful and that uh, help the patient avoid the financial toxicity that is associated with today's uh, drugs. But that, that does speak to the weight that you're asking investors to uh, make with you, right? To, to come along for the ride and that it's ultimately going to prove successful, but you're going to have to be patient. Simply, that's the way that this business that you know better than most uh, operates. Even if the business model may be a little bit different than your traditional biotech, it's still a, a waiting game and a, and a hope and a risk. Scott, let, let me well, take the other side of that for a second, and then Eli, you can jump in. We may not know how much of product A sells, what market share it has until 2025, but there's a lot of things we're going to know before then that'll be really positive catalysts. Today, the company has relationships with 20% of the lives in the U.S. That will go from 20% 
to a much higher number as they form new partnerships with other uh, managed care type organizations, and our capital will help that. Today they have 10 molecules, two of which are pre-registrational. By 2022, they expect to have 22 molecules, and our capital will help accelerate that. So over the next six to 12 months, you're gonna see lots more drugs in license, lots more drugs get through the different stages of approval, and you're gonna see the buyer's club expand. In my opinion, it's not very hard to assume that when the market sees a company with a portfolio of 20 drugs that address $200 billion of spend and see all the buyers, both in the US and globally, bought in to push those products at massive discounts that you can look back and extrapolate and say, yeah, I don't know if product A will have 10% share or 25% share, but I do know this, at 10% share, this company's gonna do billions of dollars of revenue, and at 25, it's a multiple of that, and this business will have succeeded in laying the foundation to disrupt the market. And as you look back at other businesses like this in other spaces, Amazon, Tesla, whichever example you use, in hindsight, it's obvious, but the whole key always was they needed the team and they needed the capital. So the reason why SPAC makes sense for EQRX today is not because the stock's gonna pop today. The reason why it makes sense is they're gonna put $2 billion on the company's balance sheet with an awesome team that's the best in the industry. And as they spend this, and with each success, it becomes more obvious that they're gonna disrupt the model and the flywheel goes into effect. And then Eli will tell you, he has innovative companies in his portfolio calling him saying, once they've laid the pipe at EQRX, can we use them to distribute our product so we don't have to invest in sales and marketing, we can leverage those relationships. So any one drug may take three or five years to get to marketing, get, get revenue, but I think the money today is gonna to prove out the model. And I think people in the industry, especially in this pipe group, really get that. And it is an awful pipe market. It is an awful SPAC market. We went out to raise a billion dollar pipe. We were oversubscribed. We probably had 500 to a billion dollars of excess demand and we were able to upsize it. So I think people who get the, the story realize this is a really attractive, you know, medium to long-term investment. Eli, give you the last word, then I gotta, gotta, gotta run. Yeah, no, Scott, the only thing I would clarify is that they have two registrational products that are gonna address by 2026, $50 billion in revenue. That, that sort of risk curve for their, their leading assets of will these drugs work, they've already crossed over. So this is a company where today the valuation floor is on drugs that have huge market potentials that are already gonna be uh, approved. I got you. I'm glad you made that clarification uh, for us. I appreciate that. Uh, congratulations, guys. We'll talk to you again soon. Eli Cash. Thanks for having us, Scott. Keith Meister. Thanks, Scott. You guys uh, stay well, and uh, we'll see you down the road. Been a wild ride for Robinhood over the last week, as you know. We know John Nigerian's been trading it. Oh, boy. Now another member of our investment committee is making moves in Hood. You'll find out who next. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Shares, they're rallying again to cap off a wild first week of trading. Today's move follows Thursday's nearly 27% decline on reports that existing shareholders can sell up to nearly 98 million shares over time. All right, now, 
John Najarian the other day told us of his involvement, and we'll get an update on that in just a second. Doc, so get ready. But Kevin O'Leary okay. bought the name on the day of the IPO when it traded down to $35.69. Give us more. My journey into this name started when Vlad was getting grilled by Congress, if you remember, and being heavily criticized out there. I, I just called him out, out of the blue and started talking to him, giving him some encouragement to get through those few days. And he started walking me through the business model. And I downloaded an account. I'm actually a Robinhood account holder. I'm, I'm up, I put 10,000 in, I'm up to 14,000. I'm just thrilled because I'm trading like a banshee on it. But that's not what I think is interesting about this model. This is a disruptive business in financial services. There's no question about it. And my investment thesis was, okay, we'll take down some stock in the IPO. But as you remember, Scott, that day, there was stock everywhere. It was a heavy, heavy, heavy day. And the press was really treating this thing like a both good and bad. It was getting press everywhere. So we decided not to take down IPO stock. We waited for a few hours. We didn't get the bottom, but we got close to it. But if you look at how much interest there is in the model itself and this democratization, and there's no question that there's now an influence between social media and media itself and stock prices by the democratization. And this is basically the vessel that lets that happen. Why not take down, in our case, a 2% position? Now, this is the best performing name we have on our book. It's way past 5% now because it's basically doubled in a week. I did not anticipate that. I'm very thankful for it. But I'm in the name to stay because I think those 20 million accounts that they created were the envy of every Fidelity and Schwab and every other TD and so, everybody so, else. They okay, so, able to do it. So you're telling me... So I just want to be clear, okay? You're in this name to stay. You just said those words on national television, international television. So if, if, if this thing performs like other meme stocks have, and a lot of those gains from IPO day evaporate, um, even momentarily, you're going to have the wherewithal, and you're telling people right now you're staying with the name, or you, if it does have a big pullback in its share price, you're going to start selling some. No, let me be clear how I manage a name like this. I never let a name in a portfolio become more than a 5% weighting. Not then, not now, not ever. That's just risk mitigation. Other people have different philosophies. That's mine. This name is already past 5%. It will get trimmed back to 5%. If it corrects, it'll be raised back up to 5%. And over time, if a name continues to perform, our cost base goes to zero because we keep trimming it at a 5% weighting. Now, not everybody agrees because you're basically trimming your weighting. That happened to us in Tesla, too. But at the same time, this is a volatile story. But I'm buying into it. You have to respect 20 million accounts. Nobody could pull that off. And they did it. And everybody else is trying to figure out how to do it. And they were able to do it with a really rational. And remember something a lot of people don't remember about this name. You cannot short a stock on this platform. The CEO's trying to protect newbies, doing the best job he can, but I respect the 20 million accounts. For sure, but you don't have any concerns, um, and there, there are some that people have certainly mentioned uh, since this story really started to capture people's attention, whether it's more scrutiny around payment for order flow, whether it is a fickle, if you want to call it that, retail investor environment that sure looks great with those 20 million accounts during a bull market but what happens if that turns the lack of diversification that some cite 
may be compared to a SoFi, for example, which has a range of different products. This doesn't seemingly have those at the, the given time uh, either. How do you how do you respond to that? Well, first of all, if you look at the offerings now being expanded on Robinhood, you can buy indexes, you can buy ETFs. But you have to admit, and I think everybody on this panel would admit over the last two years, there is now a correlation between social media, media, and stock market capitalization pricing. I'm sorry. It's nobody's fault. It's just the fact. So when you go look at SoFi versus Robinhood on the Reddit boards and see how much Reddit activity is around Robinhood and not around SoFi, you can see the difference in those stock prices. And look, don't shoot the messenger. I'm not the only person observing this. And today when I make private investments in companies that are planning IPOs down the road, the first question I ask is, who's running social media for you? Who's yeah. actually telling your story? Who is doing your messaging? Because no, that I, I, matters I you. in terms of what you're worth. I, I hear you. I'm also looking at GameStop, which was at 483, and now it's at 150. So that, that's why I bring it up. Dr. J is going to have an update on his trade as part of Unusual Activity. We'll do that next. Unusual Activity and a Robinhood update, Doc. Yep, real quick, Scott. Uh, Bank America is the Unusual Activity. Stock was just below 40. They're buying the next week out. 40 calls. Bought them in big numbers, Scott, 12,000. That's 1.2 million share equivalent. I'm in those. They're obviously looking for a little bump up because of the rates. Second, an update on Robinhood. I'm out of my stock. I'm out of my covered right in Robinhood, but I'm still in the trade. So my brother from another mother, Kevin O'Leary, I'm right with you, sir. I own the 55 calls, Scott. I'm short the 75 calls in September. I'm looking for that one to pay off. And by the way, Sold a straddle this morning in there. The volatility is compressing. Uh, it's come down from an $18 straddle in just three hours to now $15. That's how fast volatility is compressing in Robinhood. Yeah, what a week. 59% uh, gain uh, for Robinhood. We're back with Final Trades next. Miss a new primetime series, Money Court with Kevin O'Leary. It premieres Wednesday, August 11th, 10 p.m. Eastern time right here on CNBC. Kevin O'Leary, congrats. Look forward to that. What's your final trade? Well, it's got to be Alibaba. The government's put it on sale, but people keep buying retail. It's one of the behemoths globally, so I'm buying more. Wow, that's interesting. Okay. Uh, especially in light of what's happening with those Chinese internet stocks. Degas Wright. Costco, we like it because of the profitability, valuation, expectations. Customers are going out getting quality products at a discount. I know you like it, but you're adding more to it, right? Exactly, yes. Okay, just want to make sure we're as specific as we possibly can be. Shannon. PayPal, we added this a few weeks ago. Don't fear the e-commerce names. The digital acceleration is going to continue. All right, and the good doctor, what do you got? Thank you, Scott. Uh, Marathon Petroleum, MPC, bought calls during the show. A lot of them have been bought today. All right. Uh, good weekend, everybody. Dow is at a high right now. It's a new intraday high, 162 points. We'll see you on Monday. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. 
While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.